Hello, this is episode 265 of the Proper Psychology Podcast. I'm Nisha Reilly. So this episode is on the idea that with consciousness we see weaknesses. I spent the night before last up watching the Aurora. I've seen it often fleetingly in Ireland now. I think this is about my fourth time. I often see it when the weather is very warm here. Or sometimes in October. It's a bit unpredictable. The interesting thing about the Aurora, because the first time I saw it, I couldn't quite believe that I had seen it because it didn't have these really striking colours that you see in photographs. And what I didn't realise is that it's not unless the Aurora is really strong that you can actually see that colour breakdown with the naked eye. You can often see those colours with a camera. So you get to see in a much more striking way when you take photographs of it. But... And the other night, it was actually clear enough to start to see some of the colours naturally, which was pretty awesome. It's as if I woke yesterday morning with the whole download in my brain. And I was thinking about why did I start focusing on secureness. And at this time of the year, I often go back to the beginning. It's a time for me to regroup a little bit. I think it's just a habit that I've got into from when I started the school because I wasn't doing as many classes for these months I used to go back and write up all the work so even though I continue working during the summer I still tend to, to go back and do a kind of a decompression chamber sort of time and it's a great benchmarking exercise which means pulling a lot of notebooks and books off the shelf and there were some very pivotal books and films in the beginning which helped me to have the confidence almost to be myself, to add all the sums of the parts of me together to create something new. I often describe to parents that people with my sort of personality have a long life journey and we tend to do a lot of different things and then gradually add all of those together to create something new. So two books that I went back to yesterday, both by Dr. Jane Goodall, my Life with Chimpanzees was the first one I read as I started this school. And the other one was Reason for Hope, which I read as I started to write. They showed me that being an observational scientist for 10 years before starting my own school was actually an excellent route to take. And it's funny because one of the other books that I read at the time was The Life and Works of Maria Montessori. And I didn't realise that she had trained to be a medical doctor and she had also spent exactly 10 years studying work peripheral to her field and then going into education as well. So because sometimes we, we have an idea with education that you have to stay in a very narrow parameter with it, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it often lacks as much creativity as it needs. Well, there were two particularly harrowing stories in, in those Jane Goodall books. One was the sort of chimp war that took place in Gombe in the 1970s, where there was a break-off splinter group of chimps that became quite aggressive and tried to define their own territory, and in the end there was a, a huge war between them, which the staff in Gombe couldn't get involved in, and just had to sort of stand back and watch the bloodshed, and it was quite harrowing, because at that stage they had been studying them for quite some time and it, it was quite horrific for them to watch. But the other story which I nearly found worse in, in many aspects was one where there was a mother and daughter chimp, um, Passion, which was an ironic name, and her daughter Pom, 
who repeatedly killed and cannibalized other mother's chimps. And there was one particular chimp, and I, I can't read the name, unfortunately. And this particular mother chimp had had polio when she was younger, and so she was left with sort of some physical constraints and weaknesses due to that. And so she couldn't fight them off. And they repeatedly, every time she had a child, they would kill the child in front of her very brutally and then proceed to eat it in front of her, which is like, just seems so dark and, and twisted. And they continued that behavior. Um, and and the, the mother that they had targeted so much eventually died. She was just completely broken. But their behavior didn't stop until they had their own children. And then they left everybody else alone. But it, it really struck me at the time as such a deeply dark, twisted place to work from. And this sense of what we will do given the cauldron of ingredients almost presented to us. And it got me thinking that with, with consciousness, what we gain is this sense of weakness in others. And they're all bad things in the world are directly related to us hiding our weaknesses or playing on others. Like we, we all know that people don't really grow up from the school playground. Like we see that played out at really high levels in, in board management companies with very successful people. We see exactly the same games play out as we would see in a schoolyard. But if we think about it for a moment, like that whole concept of focusing on someone's weaknesses, all the things that we pick on to focus on in children and pick on them about. And I think this is one of the reasons why I think Harry Potter is fantastic because so many children would have been bullied for wearing glasses. And I remember going to see the Harry Potter exhibition in London and nearly every child that was queued up to see it had glasses on. It was just exceedingly cute that they had found a character to relate to because they wore glasses. And it is a big part of the Harry Potter story. Like, his glasses are always picked on. I don't know how many times, you know, Dudley broke his glasses when he was younger. I think he starts school with sellotape glasses. So there's, there's this sense that all of the bad that happens in the world is because we look for these weaknesses in people. It's so applicable to any form of bullying, to rape, to domestic violence, to racism. It's all under there, under the surface. This idea of what we're going to choose to, to pinpoint in someone else, to hide what we don't want others to see in us. And I have a sort of feeling at the moment, and at the beginning of the pandemic, myself and a friend who's somebody from my theatre days sort of, you know, sat down and tried to sort of think about where everyone would be at as we started to come out of this. And we're, I don't think we're out of it. We're just in a certain phase at the moment. But it feels we predicted that it would be the null carrot era where it's this sense of we have humanity on one side trying to reach oblivion and in Ireland they're just out on the streets as we would say getting locked and having no awareness of what's taking place around them and on the other side of humanity we have 
a totally destructive force trying to both hide their own sense of where they feel weak, but also try to gain a hold over others around them. It's a very, there's no middle ground at the moment. You're either starting a riot or intent on oblivion. And I know of one situation in South Africa where one of the most spiritual, gentle souls has bricks stacked up on the balcony to save their family. That's where humanity is at right now. And, and when a lot of the studies came out from Gombe in the 1970s, Dr. Jane Goodall writes about this, it was also a time of the Vietnam War. It was a time where people were looking for an excuse for people's behaviours. They wanted a cop-out. They wanted there to be a selfish gene, which was an idea published at the time. They wanted war to be a natural part of our DNA to be able to explain it away. But for me, it's as easy as being secure in ourselves or not. The actions of a secure person will always be more mediated. They will sit on a balcony and think, do I really need to throw the brick or maybe they'll go away here? I don't really need to start a war. In the same way as that mother and daughter Whatever insecureness was in them about having not had a child yet themselves, that need to destroy somebody else's, but the sense then in attaining what they wanted and not needing to create destruction around them anymore. And there was many studies done at the time, and one in particular, which again Dr. Jane Goodall talks about in Reason for Hope, and it was this idea done in Stafford University where children were shown a mannequin being beaten in front of them. And afterwards, all the children in the group repeated the actions to the mannequin. And there was a sense that showing violence to children meant that they recreated it. And I'm not disputing that, but it just feels slightly more complicated to me in the sense that it was a mannequin, it was an inanimate object, it wasn't visibly suffering. It was the 1970s, you know, there wasn't interactive mannequins, it wasn't in any way realistic. I would be prepared to predict that there's actually three different groups of people in the world. There are those who inflict pain before you can do it to them. And, there are those, and, and in a way, there are also the people who act from a place of pain, of unacknowledged pain quite often, in a similar way to the, the chimp mother and daughter. There are those who copy an action without a sense of consequences or the impacts in doing so. There are a lot of personalities in the world that get themselves into very difficult situations because it's easier to go along with something. And the reason they do that is not really from any, it's not exactly from a sheep mentality place. It's actually because they don't understand how something will play out and how it will be in the future before they've taken the action. There are many reasons for that and there are many people who very much work in what is almost a very sensing way. It's like, I do this, I do this, I do this. Oh, that's what happens when I do that. So that's a, an, another part to it. And there are those people who are so traumatized by the suffering 
of the victim, and, and this is what we didn't see in, in that mannequin experiment, did they often actually take it out on themselves or in their best, most secure form, they will go over and try to comfort the victim and, and make the situation better. So there are, there are very different ways of being. And increasingly, I'm drawing people who are often very, very young ages. And it feels like as if, you know, they've stepped out as characters out of Octavia Butler's novels at this stage. There are people who are so sensitive and empathic and emotionally intelligent that they can't face being in the world. And they develop their emotional intelligence at such young ages, but often in the adults in their world are hyper insecure to this. And it's becoming a, a recurring theme for me. The sort of control they have to exert over themselves and also those close to just survive. And I guess in the same ways, you know, that the gyms were named, you know, passion, like our emotions can, can flow two ways. They can flow to a point of destruction or a point of love. Those gyms proved that they were equally capable of both raising their own children afterwards, having created such horror around them before they did that. And so it is, like, it's, it seems like an increasingly strange society that we live in that the people who are capable of feeling the most and seeing the most and being most aware can hardly cope in the world right now and so i'm not surprised that there isn't a middle ground it's all it's it's as if you either take that to a place of oblivion or you take it to a place of some form of destruction which can either be yourself or be for others but i really wish that consciousness didn't come with our focus on trying to find weaknesses, finding those sores to pick at. And, and that, I think, having reflected a lot, is why I focus so much on secureness. That's why it, that changes all of that, how it all plays out.